Good morning and happy Thanksgiving. I'm afraid to ask how many of you guys can relate to that story uh, or that video. Uh, it does happen, though, uh, in our age of technology uh, that we often live through our phones instead of enjoying and experiencing life as it is happening uh, before us. And I just want to encourage you today to be thankful for what God has given you, for the family around you, the friends around you, uh, and to enjoy that. Um, and so that video was a little bit accurate. I do have an issue with the end of that, though. They talked about going to eat some chocolate pie. Am I who eats chocolate pie on Thanksgiving? I am excited about pumpkin pie. Uh, can I get an amen? I love pumpkin pie, um, so looking forward to that a little bit later today. Uh, we are in the middle of a series called Words to Live By uh, as we look at the words that we have chosen as a faith community to shape us, and as we've said each of the weeks uh, prior, the words that we use have the power to create uh, an experience for us and those around us. We know that individually when we use painful words or encouraging words, it can actually impact somebody else's life. The words that have been spoken to you in your life have impacted you. They've actually helped shape you into who you have become because of what has been said to you. Uh, and that's also true when we think corporately. The words that we choose to use, the language we choose to use creates a culture. And we want to be very careful about the culture we create because the culture we create uh, actually indicates what we're all about. And if we're all about guiding people into a relationship with Jesus, then we ought to create a culture uh, that is going to help that to happen. And so we've chosen our words, our values, uh, very intentionally. And we started in week one, and we talked about the value of don't do life alone. Everybody say, don't do life alone. And we talked about the value of community, that God created us to live in community, uh, but if we just look for community for the sake of it, we talked about how that actually won't be enough. It'll always leave you wanting, uh, because we we have a tendency to put expectations on other people uh, that we shouldn't. God created us to find our worth and our value and our belonging in Him, and as we center our lives around Jesus, we end up doing life together with those who have done the same. And so we do life together because Jesus is our center. Uh, Week two, we talked about... No perfect people allowed. Um, and that's great news for me. Uh, so I can be here. If you're perfect, you can leave. We talked about that last week. And this week, uh, we're going to talk about how we don't maintain, we multiply. Let's say that together. We don't maintain, we multiply. Maintenance versus multiplication. You know, I remember my very first car like it was yesterday. It was a Ford Tempo. Uh, any Ford Tempo owners out there? A few. Uh, you weren't dumb enough to own a Ford Tempo, I guess. Uh, Ford Tempo. It was actually my grandma's car that I inherited that she gave to me, and I was very happy about that at the end of high school, and I was going off to live my life in college, and so I was given a Ford Tempo. Uh, I didn't know anything about cars. I didn't know that cars needed to be maintained. Nobody told me this. You think this is obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me. I, you know, I used my parents' cars. I never thought twice about uh, the mileage and the wear and tear that went on a vehicle. And I got a car when I was in college. Uh, no idea what I was supposed to do with it. I just drove it to college and back from college, and I drove it back and forth for years. And little did I know that every time I drove it back home on Christmas break or on summer break when I brought it home, my dad would take it and he would do an oil change and fix it and maintain it. Uh, and he would never tell me. And so all this was happening, and my car just kept going, and I thought, this is, it, this is the way cars work. Uh, and as life, as, as life went on, and I didn't realize like, this maintenance was a thing, I can remember uh, shortly after Lisa and I got married, we were working in Prince George, and I remember driving uh, down a highway outside of Prince George. We had gone away for the weekend to do some hiking and stuff, and right in the middle of nowhere in BC, my car breaks down on the side of the road, and it was useless, 
and I left it on the side of the road, and then we never went back to it. We, got, we hitchhiked. Uh, we got a, somebody actually came, picked us up, and we left the car there, uh, and that was the end of the Ford Tempo, and we had to move on to other things. And so a car you need to maintain, yes? This is what I've learned in my life. And maintenance is really, really important. In fact, we maintain things because we want things to stay the same. We maintain things when we want things to stay the same. So when you buy a car, you maintain it because you want the value of your car the day that you get it to last as long as possible because the assumption is that that thing will depreciate and lose value as time goes on. So maintenance is really, really important for some things. Maintenance is important for a car. Maintenance is not a great mindset for a marriage. Right? So when you get a car, the best day of your car is day one. And you're just trying to hold on to day one as long as you possibly can, right? When you get married, hopefully the best day of your marriage is not day one. When, we, when it comes to relationships, we don't want to maintain relationships. We know intuitively if we seek to maintain relationships just for the sake of maintaining it, we actually need to pour into relationships. We need to give something into relationships. The, the hope and the expectations that a relationship would expand, that it would grow, that it would multiply, that it would become more than what it was at the very beginning. See, some things in life we need to maintain. Other things in life we actually want to see grow and expand. When Jesus came and he was announcing the kingdom of God, when he poured out his Holy Spirit on the church after his death and his resurrection, then he ascended into heaven and he told the disciples, wait, wait and pray and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And, and God sent his Holy Spirit to empower the church. The whole heart of what God was trying to do was set about a multiplying movement, something that was going to expand to the ends of the earth, from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. He had in mind that this movement, the kingdom of God, heaven coming to earth, wasn't something that was just going to be isolated into a certain people or a certain geographical location. It was something that was intended to expand and multiply, something that was intended to be renewed, not depreciate, something that was, to, that was expected to grow instead of shrink. God doesn't want us to maintain the world. He doesn't want us to maintain our faith. He doesn't want us to maintain church. He actually wants it to expand. Maintenance is great for a car, but maintenance when it comes to church and faith is completely unbiblical. God does not call us to maintain anything. He's calling us to expand his kingdom. And so as a community, we want to value and take seriously the call to see God's kingdom expand, to see things be multiplied. And corporately, this is why we value things like mentoring and discipleship. And discipleship is really talking about becoming like Jesus. And Jesus, at the, uh, at the end of his time on earth, told his disciples to make disciples who make disciples. This is the greatest commandment I can give you because he is telling us to expand and multiply his kingdom. When we think corporately, this is why we, we think about doing multiple service, services over time. When we went from one service to two services, people were actually upset because we didn't want to lose our friends in the community that we had, but we believe that God is actually calling us to expand. That's why at some point in the future, we might even talk about a different service or a new campus or a church plant. And you might be thinking, well, why wouldn't we just add and add and add? Because the more that you add the more spectators that you have. And church is not a spectator sport. Don't let the lights confuse you and one person standing on stage confuse you. Church is not a spectator sport. 
And there's a lot of studies that have shown that groups of about 150 is the maximum size that you can have for people to be known and to know other people and to be engaged and use their gifts and their talents and their treasure and their time and community. Once it starts to grow beyond that number, people begin to become more of a spectator than an engager. And so because of that, we believe that God has not called, called us to grow just by adding on. Our, our dream at SunWest is not to have a big mega church campus that we'll have thousands and thousands of people to. In fact, this room is, is a good test for us because it actually forces us to multiply as we grow. Addition is not the same as multiplication. God's heart is to have people engaging in his mission. And because of that, we believe in multiplication more than addition. The more you add to one gathering, the more spectators you have, but God did not intend for his church to be a spectator sport. So corporately, that's why we value multiplying. And at the heart of every multiplying church and movement are individuals that refuse to hoard their time and their treasure and their talent. Because you can't multiply without generosity. At the, co- at the core of every multiplying church is a heart and a posture of generosity that comes from a posture of thankfulness. And it's important that we even talk about this as it's Thanksgiving weekend, that we're thankful for what we're, we've given, and that actually empowers us to, to have a mindset of abundance which moves us towards this movement of generosity. The principles of God's kingdom and how this works, how this multiplying work works, is powerfully seen in one of the most Uh, famous passages and stories in the Bible. And it's found in Matthew 14 or Mark 6 or Luke 9 or John 6. In fact, it's the only miracle story outside of the resurrection of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. Does anybody know what the story is? It's the feeding of the 5,000. How many of you guys have heard this story? Maybe you grew up in church and you saw the story on flannel grass. Maybe you've seen cartoons about it. You've, yeah, most people that don't even read their Bible know about the story. It's, it's an incredibly famous story. And so we're going to read the story, and we're going to read it out of Mark 14. Although, like I said, there's multiple uh, places to read it in each of the gospel books. But in Mark 14, starting in verse 13, it says, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and is already getting late. Send the crowds away so, that, so they can go to the villages and buy themselves food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You must give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, what a cool story. You show up, there's no food, and Jesus multiply these loaves by the thousands so that upwards of 10,000 people would have eaten food out of these five loaves and two fish. Who, who would have loved to be a part of a story like that? Anybody? I want to ask this as a serious question, though. Not just a rhetorical question. Who would love to be a part of a story like that? 
where God multiplies something and does more than we could ask or imagine. It's important that we remind ourselves of the context of the story. Don't let the familiar rob you from actually seeing the profound parts of what the story is trying to teach us. Sometimes when a story becomes familiar, we stop learning the truths that Scripture can tell us. And so the context of the story, people are walking around, they're following Jesus because he's doing amazing things. He's healing people. The lame are walking. The blind are seeing. Things are happening. People are murmuring about it. They're talking about it. Have you heard of this Jesus guy? Have you, did you hear what happened to Joe? You know, they're all talking about these things. And so this, this gathering and this following is happening. And Jesus is moving from region to region. And the, and the wake of people behind him is growing and growing. And there's something powerful and amazing about that. But there's also something tiring about that. And in fact, the text begins by saying, when Jesus heard what had happened... He withdrew by a boat to a solitary place. Well, what had happened? If you read the story right before this, one of Jesus' best friends, his cousin, John the Baptist, was just beheaded. He was just murdered. Jesus is grieving. Jesus is in a a hard place in his life, and he's trying to get away. He's trying to get to a solitary place because he needs some time alone. And yet his movement, what he is doing is is so popular that people just can't leave him alone. So the crowds are following him on foot, even though he's trying to get away. He gets in boat trying to get away. I mean, it would be understandable. You could could see Jesus like on the boat, like turning around and yelling, "Just, just leave me alone. I don't have time for this. I just need a few minutes by myself. It would be understandable if this was Jesus' mindset. And in fact, this is the mindset of the disciples because the disciples are trying to be protective of Jesus. So the crowds are following him. He's trying to be by himself, trying to be alone. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he didn't get off the boat. It doesn't say that he was frustrated, that he was angry, that he looked at them and just yelled at them. It said he had compassion on them. And this is so important for us to understand what happens in the rest of the story. This is the heart of Jesus, and compassion is the heart of every miracle of God. Compassion is at the heart of every miracle of God. And when we want to see God move in a powerful way, we have to ask ourselves, do we want that for ourselves, or do we want that because we have a heart of compassion? In fact, one of the versions of the story says, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them because they were lost. Do we have compassion for the lost, for the hurting, for the broken? Jesus, even in the midst of his pain and his grief, he looked up and what he saw was people. What he saw was people that needed someone to love them, to care for them. He saw people that needed to belong. This is the heart of God and this is the heart behind every miracle of God is a posture of compassion. And so as evening approached, the disciples came to him. So Jesus was there teaching. He was there healing. The evening comes, disciples come to him, and they said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages by themselves and get some food. So the the disciples identify a problem. There's a capacity problem right here. 
We don't have enough resources in this moment to meet the obstacle that we have before us. We have 10,000 people here. And again, the story's called the feeding of the 5,000, but that's just the counting of the men, right? So there's upwards of 10,000 or more people there. We have no food. So they identify the problem. They realize there's an obstacle that they don't have the resources to manage the problem. And before we keep going, we need to recognize that we want to read this like it's this cool story about food that multiplies, but it's not just a story about food. This is a story about how the kingdom of God works. This is a story that actually uncovers the principles that we see Jesus talk about in many other places. We all have problems. We all have obstacles. We all have challenges. We all face these moments in our life where we don't think we have enough resources to respond to the thing that is in front of us. That happens for us individually, and that happens for us corporately as a faith community. There's an obstacle. There's a problem. Do we have the resources resources to do it? And this is where the crisis of these two realities meeting is when the story of the feeding of the 5,000 happens. So the disciples come to him. They tell Jesus, send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and get themselves some food, and then we can respond to this problem. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away because he has a heart of compassion. You give them something to eat. And so when a heart of compassion meets an obstacle, it provides the environment for a miracle. When a heart of compassion meets an obstacle, it actually provides the environment for a miracle to happen. And here's the crux of the whole story. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, here's this problem. What are you going to do with the problem? And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, what am I going to do? What are you going to do? Feed them. It's like, Jesus, how are you supposed to do that? And isn't this a template for most of our lives? God, what are you going to do? We have this problem. God t- looks at us and he says, what are you going to do? And then we look at God and we say, how am I supposed to do that? That's impossible. And then God looks at us and he says, exactly. Why would I ask you to do anything that you can do on your own strength? I'm always going to invite you to do something that is impossible to do without me. God will always ask us to do something beyond what we have the capacity and the resources for. Because he built us, he made us to live a life of dependence on him. So why would he want us to live an independent life apart from him? And so the disciples come to him and say, God, here's a problem. Jesus is like, I know. What do you, they say, God, what are you going to do about it? God says, what are you going to do about it? And they are like, what are we supposed to do? We only have five loaves and two fish. This is all we have. There's 10,000 people. We only have this. Jesus has them right where he wants them. Uh, And as I'm reading the story, I'm trying to think. I mean, I don't know how the food safety worked back then, but can you imagine two fish that is there all day in the baking heat of the sun? How would would that smell? How would you even go about eating that? What's the condition of those fish? I guess when you're hungry, it doesn't doesn't really matter. I, uh, I remember high school. I often went without eating my lunch, but I would get hungry by the end of the day. I was, I was on a bus ride one day home from, uh, from school, and I hadn't eaten anything all day, and I'm like, I'm hungry. What did my mom pack me? I opened my brown bag, 
and I see that there's a pizza pop in there. And it came out frozen in the morning. But by the afternoon, I, f- I touched it, and I feel it. I'm like, this thing is soft all the way through. I was like, I could think I could probably eat this. And so on the bus ride on the way home, I opened it up. I ate it. All that to say, this is the last time I ate a pizza pop. Um, gives me the heebie-jeebies even when I think about it today. Uh, and so they got two fish. They got five loaves that's been baking in the sun all day long. So this is the mentality of the disciples. We only have five loaves. We only have two fish. There's this obstacle. We have a resource problem. God, what are we supposed to do about it? That would be like me showing up this morning with a little bagel saying, okay, we're going to have a meal together. You're like, okay. And we would be just like these disciples. They're like, how is that bagel supposed to actually feed all of us? But the truth is the disciples have a, what I'm going to call an only mindset, a limiting mindset, a scarcity mindset. Because the truth and the reality is that Jesus doesn't need a lot. He just needs what we have. Here's a principle of the kingdom. Jesus doesn't need a lot. He just needs what we have. And it's a nice idea, and we can believe it in principle, but do we actually believe it in practice and reality? We live most of our lives, I think, with this only mentality. This is all I have. Jesus, these are the obstacles before me, and I only have this. What are you expecting me to do with this? And if we're not careful, we end up living in what I've called in the past this, this land of Ur. And the land of Ur is the place where somebody is always richer than you or taller than you, or skinnier than you, or smarter than you, or stronger than you, prettier than you, more talented than you. This land of Ur is this land of comparison. And that's a very problematic land to live in. It's a very problematic place to be. Because when you have an only mentality, and you live in the world of comparison, and you look to comparison to give you your sense of worth and value, you will always, always feel like you don't have enough. In fact, one of two things happen when we live in the land of Ur. Because we want to feel important, we want to feel valued, and so we're always comparing ourselves to either people that are richer than us, and then it actually creates this mentality and this experience of lack. But the flip side is, we can also compare ourselves to those who might not be richer than us, they're poorer than us, and so it gives us, a, it gives us this posture of superiority. And so in the land of comparison, you will always find yourself feeling incredibly inadequate because you're always comparing yourself to people that have more or are better or et cetera, et cetera, than you. Or you will end up developing this posture of arrogance and pride because you will look to people that have less than you to give you this place of security and worth. And so whatever land you're living in, in the land of Ur, whether someone's richer or poorer, taller or smaller, Dumber, smarter, stronger, weaker. You will either have a posture of inadequacy or a posture of arrogance. Jesus calls us to something else. He calls us not to live in comparison to what he has given us. The disciples are thinking, I only have five loaves. I only have two fish. And if we're honest with ourselves, you can actually work the system a little bit so that you're always the best. You're always the most awesome in the room. Anybody do that? 
I surround myself with people that are less than me, so I just feel amazing all the time. I was playing basketball in a men's league when I, uh, years ago, um, when I used to play instead of coach, uh, those that can't play coach. But uh, years ago, when I used to play, I remember like, it was like a fourth division in Calgary men's league, and guy, there's this one guy who was just losing his mind, and he's kicking balls, he's getting technical fouls, and he thinks he's playing in the NBA. And I said to him, I was like, dude, you're in D division. Stop trash talking. What's up with the technical fouls? Stop gloating. You're playing basketball in Canada, in Calgary, in a men's D division, and you're balding. (laughs) Give your head a shake. But he might have been the best player on the team in a D division in Calgary. Like, we could do that. We, we, we can live life that way, always in comparison, thinking we're the center of the world. But, G, but Jesus calls us not to, to, be, to make sure that we're always the most awesome, to compare ourselves with those that are the least. And he calls us not to, not to compare ourselves with those who have more and to live in a posture of only or scarcity mentality. He calls us to something different. He calls us to be thankful and content with what we have and to believe that what we have is enough in the hands of Jesus. We have only five loaves and two fish. We only have. There's this always or this only mentality. And the truth is, is that if you always think about what you only have, you will only have what you've always had. If you always think about what you only have, you will only have what you've always had. An only mentality is a limited mindset. It's a scarcity mindset. And we won't experience the miracle and the story of God that God wants to do in our lives and through our lives. God wants to multiply what he's given us. He wants to expand what he's given us. But the question is, are we willing to trust God with what we have? Are we willing to give it to him? And so Jesus, hearing that they only have five loaves and two fish, that's enough. And it's not enough because it's five loaves and two fits. It's enough because he's Jesus. It's not like if they would have had 10 loaves, he would have been like, that's too much. It's not like if they would have had two, it was like, that's too little. He just, he just needed what they had. And so Jesus takes what they give him and he says, uh, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Uh, and this is just a, just a quick little point. This is an interesting point in the story because in a couple of the other versions of the story, not only did Jesus direct them to sit down on the grass, he directed them to sit down in groups of fifties and hundreds. And we can read that uh, part of the story and think that it's irrelevant. But most scholars think that when Jesus tells them to sit in groups of 50s and 100s, it's actually an echo of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 18. And in Exodus chapter 18, Moses is hitting a capacity problem. Moses is this leader and has all these people reporting to him, and he has only so much time and so much energy, and he's complaining to God, and he says, I don't have the resources to do this. And his father-in-law shows up and says, you know what, you have to restructure your life, your life differently. You have to set up your groups in 50s and 100s and have people overseeing different groups. Jethro actually helps Moses reorganize the structure of what he's doing in corporate Israel in order that they can continue to grow in their capacity. Most scholars think there's an echo here, particularly in Mark and John's version of the story of the Exodus 18 story. And just from a corporate mindset, it's important Structure is important. Systems are important. If we are going to be a multiplying community, 
than having teams and having leaders and having leaders on different rotations and different service. Like these things are actually really important because if God is going to multiply what he's doing among us, we have to be organized in order to respond to what God is doing. And so Jesus is actually very strategic in this moment, getting people to sit, groups of 50s, groups of hundreds, and he's going to distribute the food through the disciples who are going to give it to the different groups of people. He's organizing the whole system. Anyway, so Jesus tells his disciples, bring them here to me, bring the fish to me, bring the five loaves to me. They don't think it's enough. They have this only mentality, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus has a different kind of perspective. And so he takes the loaves and he gives thanks and he breaks the loaves. He gives thanks and he breaks the loaves. And maybe on this Thanksgiving Sunday, if you are struggling with an only mentality, with this mentality to think, I don't, just, I don't have enough. I have challenges and I have obstacles before me and I don't feel like I have enough. Can we learn from the posture of Jesus who takes these five loaves, these two fish, and he gives thanks? If it were in the disciples' hands, they wouldn't have given thanks. They would have been like, God, are you serious? Five loaves, two fish, 10,000 people. How can I be thankful for this? Jesus demonstrates thankfulness before the miracle happens. Thankfulness before abundance. Abundance comes after thankfulness because abundance is actually a mindset. You realize that? Abundance is a mindset. And so Jesus actually shifts the mindset in the story by being thankful for the little that the disciples bring and the story of abundance is what follows. Jesus says, Thank you, God, for this bread and the fish, which is ironic because Jesus is God. So it's like Jesus saying, thank you, you're welcome. (laughs) So they gave Jesus what he had, what they had, and Jesus gave thanks for it, and Jesus breaks it and breaks it, and and he's, he's giving his intention to it. He gives his purpose to it. He gives his capacity to it because before Jesus touched it, it was just five loaves and two fish, but after Jesus touched it, it had the potential to be so much more. And then this is a part of the story that we can often miss. It says, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. And we call this the story of the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus, we say, when Jesus fed 5,000 people, but that's not actually true. The disciples fed 5,000 people. The disciples who said, we only have five loaves and two fish, fed 5,000 people. This is the crazy thing about the story. Jesus didn't perform the miracle for the 5,000. He performed the miracle for the 12. He transformed what the disciples gave him, and then he gave it to the disciples to give to the people. Jesus actually invites his disciples into the miracle. And some of us who come in this morning and we have this only mentality that we only have five fish or five loaves and two fish, It's actually robbing us from the life that God has for us. That mentality is actually keeping you from experiencing the abundance of God. And so there's this critical moment where the disciples have five loaves and two fish, and they have to decide, do I trust Jesus enough to give, them, to give these to him? And the very cool thing in the story, and this is the way Jesus works, is that when we give something to him, he gives it back to us and says, you do it.
And this is the process of trusting and following Jesus. We give something to Jesus and he gives it back to us and he says, you do it. He wants us to be dependent on him, but he wants to put us in the middle of the story. And that's why some of us who are sitting here, even you might be immensely talented. You might have more resources than you know what to do with, but you feel like you're missing out on life. You're struggling with discontentment. You might have conquered all of your goals, hit all of your tasks. You're making more than you ever thought you would make. You got your dream job. And yet you're wondering about your purpose and if this is all there is to life. Even if you have abundance, even if you have 500 fish, 200 200 loaves of bread or whatever it is, you can still have an only mindset. And the reason you might be struggling with discontentment is because you actually still haven't even given what you have to Jesus. Whether we have a lot or a little, do we trust Jesus with what we have? Because he takes it and he gives his intention, his, his purpose to it. He builds it. He builds capacity into it and he gives it back to us and he says, now do something with it. Now do what I've asked you to do with it. This is the same thing Jesus talks about when he talks about the parables of the talents, where one guy gets five talents, one guy gets two, one gets one, um, referring to money. And the one who only had one, had an only mentality, had a scarcity mentality. And so what does the one with one do? He goes and he buries it in the ground. The one who had five and the one who was given two, those two guys went and multiplied it. They invested it. And when the master came back and, they said, and he says, what did you do with my talents? The one who buried it said, I just buried it because I was afraid. I didn't want to lose it. I didn't want to make a mistake. I just, you know, I, I, I buried it. The other two invested it and they got double what they were given. And here's how the end of that parable turns out. The one who tried to hoard what he had ended up with nothing. The ones who actually took what they have and obeyed their master and gave it away and invested it, the story ends by saying this, they shared in the joy of their master. When we hoard what God has given us to ourselves, this is the point of the parable, we actually end up with nothing. That's why no matter what you have, if this is your mentality, to hoard it, to hold it, to keep it to yourself, you feel empty and discontent and you feel like there's something in your life that's missing because God actually created you to give it away. For those, no matter what you have, you give it to Jesus, we end up realizing we got more out of it than we even anticipated. That's the irony of the parable of the talents. That's the kingdom principle. If you take what you have and you give it to Jesus, you will experience abundance. At the end of the story, there's leftovers. If you give what you have to Jesus, you will experience abundance. He took what they have, he thanked God for it, he gave it to the disciples, the disciples then gave it to the people. And this is really critical because sometimes we think that the end of the idea of after we give it to Jesus, that Jesus gives it back to us and then it's for us. Can you imagine that the disciples just gorge themselves on fish and loaves and everybody watch them eat basket after basket after basket? That would miss the whole point of the story, but that's often how we live our lives. When Jesus gives things back to us, it's actually never for us. It's through us. Jesus wants to do something through us. That's why he gives us something. 
We will never fulfill our potential. We will never feel fulfilled if we have an only mentality and we think this is for me. And so giving it to Jesus is not a one-time event. It's an always event. It's something that we're constantly doing as followers of Jesus. We give him what we have. He gives it back to us, and then we give it away. Because what God is giving to us is not for us. It's actually he's giving it to us to go through us. At the end of the day, what Jesus is doing is not about you, and it's not about me. And we, if we're not careful, we can think this way when we talk about Jesus and responding to Jesus, that, you know, Jesus loves you, and that's true. Jesus is for you, and that's true. But at the end of the day, he wants to do something through you. You are not the end point. You are not his end goal. You are a part of what he's doing, but you are not the end goal. So have you ever said something like this? You know, I used to go to church, but I stopped getting anything out of it. I used to go to small group, but I stopped getting anything out of it. I used to tithe. I used to give my money, but I stopped getting something out of it. It wasn't working for me. And here's the truth. Here's the hard truth, that if it's about what you get out of it, you still don't get it. If it's about what you get out of it, you still don't get it. Jesus wanted to put the disciples in the middle of the story, not for their sake, but for the sake of the 10,000 people that were there. He had compassion on them. They got to be in the middle of the story. They got to experience the abundance of leftovers. They got to tell the story and tell all their friends. Yes, that that was the byproduct of being in the middle of the story, but it wasn't ever, ever about them. If you're in it just to get something, we're going to miss it. And so they all ate, and they were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And here's the gospel principle, the good news principle from a high level is that when we give our lives to Jesus, he gives his life to us. When we say, Jesus, I'm giving you my life, he says, I'm giving you my life in return. We inherit forgiveness. We inherit eternal life when we give our lives to Jesus. But this principle goes throughout our lives. It's not just about eternal life. It's actually about all the things that God has given us. When I give my time to Jesus, he gives it back to me. When I give my resources, my talent, my treasure to Jesus, he gives it back to me. When I first read the story, when we were talking at the beginning of this morning, and I said, how many of you guys want to be a part of a story like this? I was seriously asking that question. Because here's the crux of the story. The disciples had to give Jesus what they had in order to experience the miracle that Jesus did. And I think many of us, we want to keep what we have and we want Jesus to do something. And Jesus, just like in the story of the feeding, is saying, why don't you do it? So when you think about what you have, I mean, you don't literally have five loaves and two fish. Well, maybe some of you do, but you probably didn't come here with five loaves and two fish. But each one of us came here with time, with treasure, and with talent. At Sunwest, this is how we kind of summarize talking about the resources that God has given us. What do you have? What time do you have? What treasure do you have? What talent do you have? Don't get caught up in the land of her. Don't get caught up in this only mentality that says, well, I don't have as much time as so-and-so. I don't have as much treasure as so-and-so. If I had that much money, 
I'm not as talented as so-and-so if I had that much money. That is going to rob you from what Jesus wants to do through you. What do you have? Because whatever you have is enough. This is the kingdom principle. Whatever you have is enough. Whatever time you have, whatever treasure you have, whatever talent you have, it's enough. Jesus just is inviting you and asking you to give it to him. And so here's a summary of the feeding story, the feeding of the 5,000, that we see that there's a posture of thankfulness. Jesus thanks the Father for whatever they have. And thankfulness is the posture before there's a mindset of abundance. The disciples have to get out of their only mindset, their limiting mindset that, say, that says they don't have enough. And so it starts with the posture of thankfulness and moves to this mindset of an abundance that Jesus has. Jesus thinks that it's enough. Do we believe Jesus? And that mindset leads to an action of generosity in which they trust Jesus what they have. And then Jesus in turn entrusts them back with what they've given him to do what he's asked them to do. There's an action of generosity. And then after this action of generosity, there's an experience of leftovers. There's an experience of multiplication. And I believe that God is calling SunWest as a church to be a church not of maintenance, but of multiplication. But here's the reality that I know is true, that we will not experience leftovers and multiplication unless we, as individuals, choose to trust Jesus with what we have. And so I want to invite you to stand with me with these four things in mind, actually. And before the band leads us in a final song, I just want to ask you a few questions. A posture of thankfulness. Do you come in this morning frustrated that you only have five loaves and two fish? Are you thankful for the five loaves and two fish that you have? I think this is important on a Thanksgiving weekend to stop and think not of what you don't have, but of what you do have, and all of us have something. And so I want to invite you to close your eyes and just to pray in your heart. What are you thankful for? Don't think about what you don't have. Think about what you do have. Pray that to God. Thank God for what you have. For your health, for your family, for your job, for where you live. Now I encourage you to move towards a mindset of abundance. As we're thanking God, now we're moving to abundance. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd and I have no lack. Would you pray that in your mind? The Lord is my shepherd and I have no lack. I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. That is the truth. Jesus has given you enough. The Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. And I believe out of that mindset we can actually take some action of generosity. And I invite you to reflect on, on what that might mean for a minute. Jesus has given you time. He's given you treasure. He's given you talent. What would it mean for you to give that to Jesus and trust him with it? Can you pray that in your heart? Jesus, I give you 
what you have given me. I give you my time. I give you my talent. I give you my treasure. And then here's the dangerous question. How do you want to use it? How do you want to use it? This might be a question that you want to pray about in the upcoming week. You're thankful. You have no lack. And then you ask Jesus, what do you want to do with what you've given me? And then I believe as we do that individually, corporately, we will begin to experience leftovers. We will see that God has given us more than enough. So I invite you to pray. Jesus, this is what I have. Would you multiply it for your glory and my joy? Jesus, this is what I have. Would you multiply it for your glory and my joy? Amen. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 began with Jesus looking around, seeing people and having compassion on them. I think if Jesus walked through Mindapur, if Jesus walked through Sundance, if he walked through Chaparral, if he walked through Shaughnessy, wherever you might be from, he would look around and his heart would be one of compassion. He would see hurting people. He would see people that need healing, people that need hope, people that need perspective. And the disciples, maybe being aware of this dilemma, these challenges, might turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, what are you going to do? And Jesus looks at us and he says, well, what do you have? What do you have? I've only got five loaves and two fish. That's enough if you'll give it to me. This is the conversation I can see Jesus having with us. I believe that Jesus wants to impact those who are like sheep without a shepherd. He wants to reach the lost. He wants us to experience leftovers and multiplication and move what he's doing beyond us. But it starts with us as individuals saying, Jesus, this is what I have. And so maybe as you think how to move forward this morning. You might consider your time and say, Jesus, this is my time. I don't have much. And he'll say, well, can you give it to me? Can you give me some time each morning to listen to my voice so I can give you my perspective and how I want you to live today in your going that you would be able to see people the way that I see them? Would you give me some time each morning? Maybe you might say, Here, here's my treasure. This is all I have. This is all, all, all the resources I have financially. And God would say, well, would you trust me with it? Would you give it to me? You might think, well, I'm in debt. And if you're in debt and you're struggling to, to actually be generous, uh, we have resources available for you at SunWest to help you with that. Just come chat with one of our staff. But for some of you, it might be actually a step of stepping into tithing, stepping into giving, Because not only does Jesus want us to put him first with our time, he wants us to put him first with our finances and our resources. And I would encourage you to move from an only mentality to, Jesus, this is what I have. 
Maybe you have talent that God has given you, but you actually haven't given it to him and asked him, God, what do you want to do with what you've given me? I believe Jesus has compassion on South Calgary. I believe he wants to reach the city. But we can only do collectively what God has in mind for us when we do individually what he's called us to do. So I would encourage you to come open-handed this week, to come prayerfully before Jesus this week and say, Jesus, this is what I have. What do you want to do with it? And I believe that when we do that, we will experience leftovers. There will be more resources than we need because Jesus is enough. So Jesus, we thank you for what you've given us. Lord, forgive us for our only mentalities, our scarcity mentalities when we think it's not enough. Because really when we think that, we're just expressing our lack of faith and trust in you. And so, Lord, we repent of that and we choose to trust you. We give you our time. We give you our talent. We give you our treasure. And we ask you, what do you want to do with it? Lord, we thank you for the heart that you have, the compassion that you have for the people that are all around us. Would you give us your heart for them and would you give us the courage to trust you with what you've given us? Lord, may SunWest be a place of multiplication where more and more people would encounter you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd uh, like prayer for anything, our prayer teams are available uh, at the end of the service at the front. We just invite you to come forward. Uh, I pray that you would have a great Thanksgiving Sunday and Monday, uh, being thankful for what God has given you.